Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Build Podcast. I'm Kyle Poyer, VP of Market Strategy here at OpenView, where I help software companies accelerate growth and master my favorite area, pricing and packaging. That's why this season on Build, we're talking all about the art and science of pricing. Each week, I sit down with operators and experts to hear their pricing insights and experiences firsthand and answer some of our listeners' most burning pricing questions. Now on with the show. On this episode of Build, I spoke with Amanda Kleha, the Chief Customer Officer of Figma and former SVP of Marketing and Sales Strategy at Zendesk. Amanda shared her perspective about how to go about a pricing change, when freemium makes sense in SaaS, and why every founder should know their leaders, fillers, and killers. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Could you give the listeners a quick overview about yourself and about Figma? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm the Chief Customer Officer at Figma, which is a design platform built in the browser and used by design teams at places like Microsoft, Uber, and Airbnb. And I manage our go-to-market efforts, which include marketing, sales, and support. Prior to Figma, I advised startups like Airtable and Outreach.io, as well as being the first marketing hire at Zendesk back when there were less than 20 employees. I ended up spending seven plus years at Zendesk, taking the company through an IPO and leading various marketing and sales teams. Awesome. And actually, your current role is super interesting in that I haven't heard too many people that have oversight across functions into you know sales, marketing, success, sort of all of that in one umbrella. Have you been seeing that as a trend with companies? Like, I guess, how did you find that role? Yeah, you know, I haven't necessarily seen a ton of those roles available. It's kind of like a COO role, so they're out there for sure, but I don't know that it's necessarily a trend that's catching on in a bigger way than normal. But because I had a lot of experience in marketing and sales and then actually sold to the support buyer and knew a lot about support, I felt like I was in a great position to find a role where I could really broaden my skill set across all three areas together. From my perspective, for companies like Figma, where sort of sales ends and customer support begins is an increasingly gray area. And everyone's trying to drive customer success and a great customer experience. So it makes a lot of sense to bring that all together under one umbrella. Absolutely. Yeah. And when would you say that you caught the pricing bug and realized the importance of pricing in SaaS? <laughs> right. Well, at Zendesk, we made some kind of pricing change every year. And during my first year there, the change we made ended up causing a lot of controversy with customers. And I suppose that was the moment I realized the importance of pricing in a major way. And also just the importance of the way you communicate and roll out those pricing changes. Totally. Yeah, pricing can be a huge lever for growth, but also for customer complaints. And I mean, I'd love to dive into some of your, like, your initial roles involving kind of pricing and packaging. This is a totally new experience for most people. Pricing is not really taught in business school, let alone at the undergrad level. I'm curious, like, what was your first role in a pricing project and how did you figure out how to do that? Yeah. So at Zendesk, we had the typical SaaS dilemma where We built a lot of new functionality into our product every month, but we kept the same price. And we had taken the approach of adding new features into the existing packages we had. And we just got to a point where we felt like we had added so much new value that we could start to justify a higher price, at least in our heads. And obviously, we wanted to get a return on all the innovation we were building. So that was really the trigger to reevaluate pricing. And the actual price change 
decision was ultimately made by the CEO at that time. And, you know, it was based mostly on intuition and casual conversations we have with customers and employees. You know, it was the early days, so we hadn't built out much of a scientific approach to things like pricing and packaging. So the way it went down is we thought we could raise prices certainly for new customers, but for existing customers, we thought that we could grandfather the old price, but with one catch. We wanted them to upgrade to an annual commitment to get that old price. And when we rolled it out, customers were not thrilled with that approach at all. And they told us so very publicly because we had a lot of customers that paid us month to month and they just did not want to upgrade to an annual commitment. So that was the first time we had a lot of customers really angry with us. And it was very traumatic internally. My role in this whole thing was once we rolled it out and got all this bad feedback right away, we wanted to figure out what were the non-noisy customers thinking because it's you know one thing that you've got people really upset publicly, but what are the people that aren't telling you how they feel? How do those people feel? So I put together a survey, collected a lot of feedback, and we got together as a leadership team and locked ourselves in a room for a day and a half trying to figure out how we were going to deal with this and proceed forward. We ended up deciding to fall on our sword and grandfathered existing customers with no caveats, which really set the tone for how we thought about future price changes. And we kept the new prices intact for new customers. And overall, I'd say it was just a really wonderful learning experience to go through for me personally, as well as the whole leadership team there. Totally. And well, if you kind of were to do things from scratch, let me go back to the beginning of you know taking on a pricing and packaging project. Like, what were some of the key learnings or ways that you would approach it differently next time around? I mean, I think that we didn't think through the whole rollout as much as we should have. I think we underestimated how many month-to-month customers paid and really enjoyed our solution because they had that flexibility in our billing. And so we just should have talked to a lot more customers about what we had in mind to see what kind of reaction we were going to get. That was definitely the key learning for me as far as that particular launch went. But overall, I learned a lot of things throughout my time there. We had a pricing philosophy that really helped not only center us as a team, but it also helped us as new people came on board and wanted to understand what our philosophy was. We had that written down. We also kept a record on why we made certain pricing changes because these were some of the most strategic decisions we made. And so new people that came on would benefit from seeing the reasoning behind past choices I also thought in hindsight now, if you can figure out how you can make price changes quickly and in a scaled way, you're always going to be ahead of your competitors because it's just hard to do that fast over time. And so if I could go back in time, I would have done a lot more brainstorming with product and engineering teams on how to build a flexible billing infrastructure to accommodate future price changes. I think those are great points and actually things that really companies of just about any scale 
could be thinking about of what's your pricing philosophy when you've made changes have you documented why you did that and then what was the result as well and then how do you make it so that your billing and the product is flexible enough so that you can have velocity in any change i think that's really great advice for anyone you know if i look at some of the companies you've been a part of you've seen both freemium models and also free trial models. And I'm curious, this is kind of a hotly debated topic. When do you think freemium makes sense for a SaaS company? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, if product adoption can start in a team or with an individual versus the whole company or department wide, then I think you're a candidate for freemium. I think if your product doesn't require a lot of upfront setup, you're a candidate for freemium. I think if your buyer is also the user, you're a candidate for freemium. Obviously, if you're not trying to be a luxury brand, then you're a candidate for freemium. If you can provide enough value in a free version of your product to attract usage, but still leave something left to charge for a lot of people who are going to want it, then I think you're a candidate for freemium. And I think if you've passed all those tests and you want to foster faster adoption and are willing to sort out how you keep marketing and support costs in line, then I'd say maybe you should go freemium. But those are a lot of tests to pass. So it definitely depends. I like that as sort of gates to pass through or tests to pass. In order to be freemium, you have to meet certain characteristics. It's not just defaulting to freemium because you know Slack is doing it. Yeah, I mean, just yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine who's the CEO of a startup and he's dealing with the same question of whether to go freemium. And we kind of talked through those different kind of points. And at the moment, he has quite a lot of upfront setup to use his product. And so to me, that was sort of the deal killer of why he wouldn't want to go freemium. But it definitely depends. You know, when you're in a freemium business, what lessons have you learned about how to look at it? Because I'd imagine that you're looking at different metrics and assessing the health in different ways. What lessons have you learned to, you know, measure it and optimize a freemium model? Yeah, I'm definitely still learning because most of my experience has been with the free trial model. So I'm definitely more new to freemium. But first, I guess before you analyze it, you just definitely have to get your packaging right. Because if you give away too much, and you don't have anything left of value to charge for, you're going to lose. And if you don't give away enough, and then you don't get the adoption you want, you also lose. So you really have to get that right. You also really have to get your upgrade paths right. You know, your marketing team will have two much more distinct tasks, which are, you know, getting more people in the door, but then also converting them to paying customers. And your product and engineering teams are also going to have to build for those upgrade paths or else you're going to have to invest in sales to compensate for the gap. The numbers are wildly different too, as you allude to in looking at results. I'm definitely still wrapping my head around weekly actives, which we never really looked at at Zendesk, but we definitely look at at Figma. And different conversion rates throughout the whole process are a lot different than what I'm used to. So I have to reorient myself on what all the benchmarks are, but it's fun. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. All the old benchmarks from free trial sort of go, go out the window with the freemium business. Both Zendesk and Figma would be more self-service oriented businesses where self-service buying is at least a part of the potential experience for customers. 
And I'm curious about the intersection between the go-to-market strategy and pricing and packaging. Like what needs to be different about pricing in a self-service world versus when you have maybe an enterprise sales go-to-market motion? Well, your go-to-market strategy should really drive your pricing and packaging and not vice versa. The costs involved with your go-to-market strategy and your customer's willingness to pay will definitely be key data points into how much you need to charge. I'll give you an example. If your go-to-market strategy requires salespeople to sell the product, then your price should support that added cost if you're going to make it as a business. But it's also going to depend on the size of the deal and how long it takes for the deal to close. So really the complexity of the selling process, if you will. And the key difference, I think, between self-service and enterprise sales is the flexibility you have with transparent pricing. Obviously, with self-service, you generally have to put your best price forward in a very transparent way. But with enterprise sales, you at least have the option of being transparent. And you need to think through how you approach, for sure, the discount discussion with procurement teams. I like the thought of doing testing on pricing, but I think that's really hard with self-service. But with enterprise sales, I think that's a little more easy to try out and figure out what works best. So those are some of the differences I can think of. For companies with a self-service go-to-market motion, I often see sort of in their life cycle, they start to add in more of a sales motion. So there's a blend of high velocity and also an inside sales motion. When have you found is the right time to add sales or customer success resources to a self-service business? And how does maybe the sales org look different at this kind of business? Yeah, well, this is exactly the reason why at Figma, I wanted to be responsible for both marketing and sales. Because if you don't have one person that can see the picture across both of your models, then one model might start to invade the other model in a negative way. So my answer to your question, though, is quite short. It's when you're seeing deals that come in that you know could be bigger if you had a sales rep talking to them. So, for example, at Figma and Zendesk, for that matter, both companies had a very strong self-service model to start. In fact, at Zendesk, we didn't start hiring salespeople until we had literally 10,000 customers. So we had a very, very robust self-service model. But we had a lot of people who would ask us to fill out security questionnaires. And at Zendesk for a long time, we said, oh, sorry, I can't do that. Don't have the resources. But people would still buy anyway. But, you know, at Figma, we have really big customers coming in and, you know, someone in their design team is starting an account and trying it out. And I think, oh my gosh, that company just signed up the other day. Absolutely. We need to have a salesperson go talk to them. Even if they're going to buy online with a credit card, like, you know, that the opportunity is big and self-service is going to be a lot slower to infiltrate an entire enterprise company without a sales rep. So you're essentially overlaying data that you have about the customer that's signing up and sort of leveraging sales resources where you think that there's the greatest opportunity, not just, you know, who within your existing self-service base is maybe paying you the most. Yeah, that's how we're doing it at Figma, for sure. I know that we can do a lot with self-service, even more so than we do today. So I'm excited to help flourish our self-service model even more. But I really want to reserve my sales team to work on deals that I just know we wouldn't be able to win without a sales rep or we wouldn't be able to get as big without a sales rep. 
That makes a lot of sense. And it's consistent with, you know, what I've seen with our portfolio. And I mean, I would love to get your perspective on this as well. The profile of a successful sales rep in a model that's more of a freemium model where people that are potentially large enterprise customers might already have experience with the product often looks different from like the profile of a salesperson at a company where they don't have any product experience. It's the demo process, you know, building lots of champions internally and so on. What profile have you found is of a really successful salesperson? I don't know that the profile is all that different. We like to think in theory it might be a little different, and maybe it is to some degree. But, you know, right now, Figma is getting a lot of inbound leads that the sales team is working. So they're not having to do a lot of outbound yet. But we know that one day we want them to do some outbound. So we're still hiring people that have those skills, even if they're not going to use them on day one. And yes, people are still familiar with the product so that it's not a cold sale, if you will. But our sales team still does demos. Customers still want to see someone show off the product, maybe not on every single call, but there's still elements of all the same kind of traditional sales processes you have at a company that doesn't have self-service. So what I think is different is the rest of the business, you know, your culture and thinking has to accommodate two different sales motions. And that means your product marketing and support teams have to straddle both worlds. So on the one hand, you want your product team to create, you know, a more precise product onboarding that serves a self-service buyer, but is also able to distill out the right, say, product demands to chase from big sales nurtured customers. And your roadmap, therefore, has to accommodate two very different models that have different requirements. On the flip side, product marketing, they have to be able to speak to both buyers that come through self-service or an enterprise-led sale. And support has to figure out how to support both of these different models that have different cost structures. So as you have all these feature requests and different feature requests from different kinds of customers, whether they're self-service or larger businesses, how do you think about designing packages that will resonate with your different types of customers? Packages and pricing, for that matter, is a topic you have to force yourself to spend time on on a regular basis. It's really easy to just focus on the day-to-day business opportunities and challenges and never think about packages and pricing. So first step I'd say is to schedule a meeting maybe every quarter and give yourself time to think and talk about it with a small team. Beyond that, I think if your pace of innovation is high, then you're probably doing some sort of pricing and packaging decision every six to 12 months. So some of the signals might be things like, oh, no one ever complains about your pricing and packaging, which might mean that your price is too low or maybe your competitors are doing something that trigger you to rethink things. Maybe you're ready to launch something and you want to rethink your whole set of packages in conjunction with that. So those are all things that I think are pretty straightforward, but there might be a lot of other triggers for it too. Got it. And so let's say like you've had a bunch of you know executive meetings, talked a lot about pricing, come up with ideas for what you want to change. What are some tips that you have on how to actually roll out those pricing changes in a way that has as limited kind of negative reaction as possible? 
Well, I definitely think you need to have a robust communication plan. I think deciding on the price is really the easy part and rolling it out is the hard part. I've learned that generally I think customers find it's reasonable for a SaaS business to have a price change as long as the customer isn't forced into it. So that might make you think of a model where when you create something that you want to charge more for, you might make it as an add-on or a new plan that you can let your customers upgrade to instead of putting it into the existing plan they have. Then the customer doesn't feel like they're blindsided and they feel a lot more in control of their bill. That would be the most friendly customer approach I can think of to price increases that's way less risky when it comes to sparking negative reactions. If you're considering changing your price for new customers only, which is what we did for many years at Zendesk, the downside of that approach is you're going to build up a lot of technical debt and complexity internally, which is different price models that you have. Hmm. Yeah, because some of your customers are on legacy packages or pricing models. Exactly. And so you might have like a V1, V2, V3, V4 all living out in the wild. And that's exactly what we had for many years. Pricing and packaging, it really touches on a lot of different aspects of a SaaS company. We've talked about more of like sales teams, marketing, product, and then you could add finance and operations and then engineering from a billing and technical debt standpoint as well. Who do you think should own pricing internally and how do you ensure there's the right level of collaboration for pricing decisions? Yeah, that's a good question. I definitely see why in the early stages of company, the CEO is going to want to own it. It's just one of the key strategic things you do. So particularly when you're learning more about your market, it just makes sense that the CEO wants to have the final say. The way pricing ownerships worked well for me is as a partnership between a product leader and myself who represents the go-to-market side. But I think it can work fine being owned by someone in product or product marketing or some strategic separate function as long as they can represent the whole business. When it comes to collaboration across teams, I really believe that the only way you can make a pricing project successful is if it's a stated priority across all the teams. So that means the exec team has to buy in and agree that each team is going to prioritize the project in the same way. Another thing that's helped with collaboration is for one of our pricing changes, we ended up creating a deck that we then shopped around internally to help sell the initiative, if you will. I mean, pricing can have a huge impact on the business. So if you can really spell out the anticipated outcomes for people, it's a lot easier to align around it. And then is there any specific data that you look at when you're making pricing and packaging decisions or frameworks that you have that you suggest for others to follow? Yeah, well, if you're a SaaS business, you should be able to analyze the data to see how your customers are actually using the product. But I would also say that just because a customer doesn't use a feature doesn't mean she doesn't value it. I have definitely heard plenty of people tell me they bought a particular package to grow into certain features and aspire to certain features that they wanted to use in the future. But I also think you just have to talk to customers, ask them what they value and present possible options to them and see what resonates. You know, there's a great framework that your friends at Simon Kutcher taught me Your packages should have three things that you think through, which are leaders, fillers, but definitely not killers. And if you think of the value meal at the burger joint, the 
leader in a value meal is the burger. It's the feature that most people want in the bundle. And the fries and drink are the fillers. And fillers are those features that most people also want, but aren't the main driver for the purchase. And then killers are features that devalue the bundle. Most people don't want them. So when you add them to your package, people complain that they're paying for something they don't want. When you might think, oh, I'm just going to throw this little extra thing in for free, it'll be great. But in the case of our value meal, an example of a killer would be, say, a coffee. Most people don't want a coffee. Maybe some people might appreciate it, but most people are going to be annoyed that they have to pay for this extra thing they don't want. And therefore, they're going to refuse it and want a discount. And that's what makes it a killer. Right. What I think is interesting about that is that a lot of companies have this mythology of, you know, you can't ask people about the value of different features because the buyer might not know, right? Like it's for the product team to come up with what they're going to value and then marketing to communicate why they should value it. But it's sort of a reverse thinking to go, well, why don't we ask customers which of our features they really care about? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I don't know why you wouldn't want to ask your customers. I think that, sure, there might be some features that you're coming up with that your customers don't even know what it is yet. And yes, that's a product marketing exercise. But for the most part, you're selling a product that your target audience should really respond to, and they're going to have to respond to the packages you put in front of them. So why would you not want to ask them up front how they respond to certain options? Totally agree. And final question for you, what's a SaaS company that you admire from a pricing and packaging perspective? (laughs) Yeah, I'll be honest, I don't analyze a ton of SaaS companies besides my direct competitors, but I will give a shout out to GitHub. I think they do a good job of having all the variations, but still keeping things simple. So they have a freemium option. They have self-service paid plans. They have uh, in-transparent sales-driven option as well. And despite all of that, I think it's very easy to look at their pricing page and within a few seconds, pick out the package that's meant for you. And that's what I consider great product marketing. Yeah, a lot of great things to learn from that example. Well, Amanda, thanks so much for being on the OpenView Build podcast. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in to the Build podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time. <laughs>